but your voice. So come and speak loudly to us this morning, to our hearts, who is the creator of our hearts. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, last week, uh, we talked last week about Passover uh, in Egypt as it related to Jesus being the final Passover lamb. Uh, these, these sermons, these last, last week and today, there's a lot of scripture we're going to read. There's some detail. It may seem old. This is an old story and all that kind of stuff. But I think it is very, 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 very relevant to all of us all the time. So uh, let's, let's listen carefully to what God has to say to us today. But we talked about uh, how God challenging idolatry in Egypt at that time in Passover uh, and to free the Israelites from slavery, he sent ten plagues on the nation of Egypt. And, and, and the last plague being that all the firstborn uh, children and everything else would die the evening before Exodus as this judgment on their sin. And every family of Israel was to sacrifice a perfect lamb that day and the blood of which they were to paint on their doorposts, uh, the, the doorposts and the lentils of their homes, which caused the angel of death to pass over their homes uh, and save their firstborn child. And this all foreshadowed... Uh, Jesus, in that he, as, as we come under the blood of Christ, uh, God's wrath is averted from our lives. He passes over us, right? And His judgment passes over us. It covers us, it saves us from the penalty of death which, is, uh, which sin brings. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that one. But uh, today, I want to talk about uh, the the temple of God or the tent of meeting uh, before the temple was built in stone and everything they had the the tabernacle or the tent of meeting where it would move around um, and I want to talk about that today and and how it uh, housed the Ark of the Covenant and you may not have ever heard of these things or you may just you know not know some of these details but the temple was a holy structure right it was it was the place that God dwelt for Israel. And it, it was made up of different sections with the most inner sanctum, the one at the very back, uh, being the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, right? And within that room was the Ark of the Covenant, a golden box housing the gold jar of manna, housing uh, Aaron's budding staff and, and the two stone tablets of Moses, these things from old, these older stories. And it describes this place in Hebrews chapter 9. And it says this, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly, earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle was prepared, and the first section in, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, we might call it. Uh, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the the tablets of the covenant that Moses got and all that kind of stuff. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat and of these things we cannot speak in detail. Um, You'll see, I think you'll see an image later of of that Ark. Uh, Verse 6, these preparations 
having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, only one time a year, and not without taking blood, right? Which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So all this was set up as imagery or foreshadowing of something that was to come. Uh, and that's the image of the temple um, for ancient Israel. And ongoing sacrifices which were, were in place to atone for the people's sin in the face of a holy God, right? And so why all this separation? You know, why did they have to have this? And that is the answer is that God is holy. That God is holy. Uh, and holiness cannot exist, and sin cannot coexist, right? Uh, like oil can't commingle with water, uh, holy, a holy God can't commingle with sin. Without sin being paid for, uh, without sin being dealt with or atoned for, we say. Yet God loved us, He loved His people so much so that He opened that way, He opened that door, right? And that's what we're going to talk about today. To do so... The judgment of a holy God against sin had to be paid for with blood. And we might say that blood atonement is this archaic concept, that it's old, that it's ancient, that people don't do that anymore. Never mind that most of the world still does practice it. But we don't, don't we always still cry out for blood in certain circumstances, even in intelligent, well-educated American culture? Somebody shoots 17 people at a school, we, we want our pound of flesh. Somebody shoots a, a man in the backyard and, you know, we want, we want the, somebody to pay, right? So, uh, a, a career criminal rapes and murders a young girl. We want our blood, right? Think about that as you think about these old sort of whatever's uh, practices and things like that. They're not archaic and there are reasons for those feelings within us. There's reasons for these things. God's standards are just higher than ours, right? They are just higher than ours, more thorough than ours, as they need to be. Since all sin in us is an affront to His holiness, and all sin in us diminishes and destroys the peace which He intends for His people and in community with one another and eventually all over this world, right? So the great high priest goes into the Holy of Holies only once a year, right? And he stands before that Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it, right? And that there, the presence of the Lord meets with the high priest, and that's where the atonement for the people was made with the blood of the Lamb sprinkled on that mercy seat between those two golden cherubim or angels bent towards the center of the seat, all right? Hebrews 9 explains this. We'll get into that in a minute. But I want to say that Scripture is clear. Scripture is clear that this was all provisional. 
All right? It was imperfect. It was a foreshadow of something real to come into the, in the future. Something powerful, something real, right? So Hebrews 9, uh, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, so this heavenly tabernacle or this heavenly temple, he entered once for all into the holy holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, the perfect sacrificial lamb that we talked about last week, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so what this speaks of is the finality of, of his sacrifice as he takes on not only the role of the perfect sacrificial lamb for the people of God, but also the role of the great high priest who enters into God's presence on our behalf and makes atonement for the sin of God's people, and which includes me and you. Which means that he, Jesus, is a mediator of a new covenant, that something has changed with this death and the resurrection of Christ. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, not just a yearly thing, but an eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, everything in the past, past is paid for, everything in the present is paid for, everything in the future is paid for, for any that would, that would come into Christ under Christ's uh, lordship. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. I mean, they're sprinkling blood everywhere, right? And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's how weighty sin is. Something's got to pay for it, right? Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Jesus meets with God on our behalf, and nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world from the beginning of time onward, right? But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. That was a lot. Now, that was a lot. And I want you to try to remember the images of the temple and of its contents a little bit, you know, as much as you heard right there, as we look at the resurrection story, and and remember, as we look at this, that at this juncture, Jesus has been crucified, Jesus has died, and he's been buried in this tomb, and this big giant rock has been rolled in front of the tomb. And we notice some similarities, though, between the story of his resurrection in John chapter 20 with the temple in Hebrews 9, the description of the temple. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary, Mary Magdalene, 
or Mary the Magdalene, you might call her, came to, to the tomb early, and while it was still dark, so she's the, she got up early, uh, not like some of you that like to sleep till whenever, but she's up and at them, you know. She's up while it's still dark and saw the stone, the stone had be, been taken away from the tomb. This giant, huge stone has been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran <clears throat> and she went to Simon Peter. Simon Peter, this big lug of a guy, right? Sort of like Brian Dressler. This just big guy, right? All right? Sorry, Brian. You got a haircut. Looks good. Amen. Dressed up for, for Easter. Uh, and the other disciple, by the way, the other disciple is John who's writing this, right? The one whom Jesus loved. That's the way he describes himself. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So she thinks that they've just taken the body away. They've stolen the body, Right? So Peter went out to the other disciple, went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So it's funny that John, who's writing this, refers to himself as the, 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 the disciple that uh, Jesus loved, but also the guy that outran Peter, right? He's like making himself look good. So John reaches the tomb first, and in verse 5, and stooping to look in, He saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came, like this big lug, he just barrels through, following and went went, went right into the tomb. So he just barrels past uh, uh, John. And he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up nicely and put put, put in place by himself. So Jesus had a good Jewish mother, and she said, you know, when when you resurrect... I don't want you to leave the place a mess. I don't want to have to come in there and clean up after you, fold things up, right? And then verse 8, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. I wouldn't have gotten it either. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I mean, what do you do? He's gone. You just go back home, right? So recap, Mary shows up. Uh, stones rolled away, Jesus is gone. She runs to get these guys, even though they knew the scriptures and they had heard plenty from Jesus directly, they, they di- still didn't expect him to rise from the dead, rise from the grave. So they, so they went home, and this is where it gets interesting. Verse 11. This is why I read all that other stuff. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So she is just attached, right? She has an emotional affiliation, affinity with Christ. And she is sad about this, right? So she stays. Guys, we're a little bit dumb, like uh, us men. We're we're just kind of a little detached. So she stays at the tomb, and she wept, and she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet, right? So you got the burial slab, and there they are. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. And the two angels were sitting there, right? As, as we just picture that in your mind's eye, at either end of that burial slab, and having read the description of the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and having seen the picture already, what's that bring to mind? Not to mention that the word Ark is also translated as coffin. It's something that transports us from life to death uh, and into, into life again. Actually, if you think about uh, Noah's Ark, going from life, or death to life 
in Noah's Ark, you know, landing safely on, on Mount Ararat or whatever. So here, right here, God has provided us with a visual image of who Jesus is and what he does for us. His burial slab, his coffin becomes the mercy seat where atonement is made. The two angels sitting at the head and foot of it become the cherubim of the ark, overshadowing that. And the tomb has suddenly become the most holy place, the holy of holies, the inner sanctum of the temple of God. And as the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled right on that mercy seat in the, t- in the tabernacle or in the temple between the two cherubim and that holy of holies, so also the blood of Christ is spread on this burial slab as the new covenant enacted for anyone who would put their faith in Christ. Anyone. And we're going to see that in a minute. Just as last week we saw Jesus foreshadowed as the Passover lamb, this week we see him also foreshadowed in the Holy of Holies and in the mercy seat and in the great high priest. Now notice that the Holy of Holies was the place that one could meet with God. They could be right in the presence of God. And now Christ's empty tomb becomes that place where we can meet God where we can meet Jesus and fellowship with Jesus, who enters the Holy of Holies and meets with with the resurrected Christ first. Who does that? Who goes in first? Who sees this first? Who experiences it first? A woman. A woman. In a patriarchal society where men are more important, the witness of men are much more important than women's. Not now, by the way. I didn't say that. The door is swung wide open. God is making a statement. And if Mary didn't grab, grab hold of the imagery right then, if it didn't sink in, I imagine she probably woke up one day from a nap and said, oh my gosh, I get it. The ark, the covenant, right? The, the, the temple of God. You know, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. I get it now. All the imagery of the temple coming into focus in her mind's eye in one moment. But it gets better since it is Easter and this lamb does live again. Right? Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Remember, it's still dark. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Still dark. She's crying. She's probably looking down and not really looking up at the guy, right? She doesn't recognize him at first. And then Jesus asked that question that he asks everybody. And he's probably asking you right now, Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? And see, the thing is, we mistakenly always ask the what. What do I seek? What am I seeking in life? What's going to make me happy? What's going to make me fulfilled? Our question reflects, you know, what God said to Haggai in chapter 1. He said, give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to have... Uh, only, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. The hamster wheel, right? The hamster wheel of life. We've all been on it. Looking for the next thing that's going to satiate desire, career, sex, money, power, pleasure, whatever it is. 
Thirsty but never satisfied, always wanting more. The what never, never, ever satisfies. But the who does. But it's got to be the right who. (laughs) Whom are you seeking? Mary found him. Supposing him to be the gardener. Isn't that great? (laughs) She's like, oh, oh, you're the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you've... You've carried him away. She's probably crying. You've carried him away. Just, just tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. And you could hear, you could imagine this, right? She's standing there. She's crying. She's distraught. It's still dark out. It's a, probably a cool morning. You ever get those like the sun's just starting to come up? And she's standing there with him, and he says to her, "Mary," in a tone and in a way that she could recognize, right, Mary. He calls her by name. That is an intimate, intimate, intimate moment. The two of them together, standing there alone, her teacher, the one that she followed, that she invested so much in, the guy that drove seven demonic spirits from her life and gave her freedom and gave her healing, but then the guy that she watched crucified and buried. And all her hopes on that day were shut behind a giant stone during that burial. But right now, in this moment, the stones rolled away, the doors opened, and there he stands, Mary. Can you feel that? At first, it must have seemed like a cruel joke. Who took the body, right? But now resurrected Jesus calls her by name, and her tears of sorrow suddenly turn to tears of joy. And she turns to him in Aramaic and she says, Rabbani, which means teacher. Now, any teacher likes to be called teacher, right? If you're a teacher and somebody like, is describing you to somebody else and they say, this is my teacher, it feels good. I have people in this community that call me their pastor that don't even go to this church. Oh my gosh, that feels really good. I love it when, uh, when your kid, little Lucy, runs up, Pastor Jason, pa-. oh, you know, I mean, you want to make my day, call me Pastor Jason. It just feels good, right? Not that I think I'm that great. I'm just saying it feels good when somebody recognizes that you have a special place in their heart. That you consider them, or they consider you, to be something that you can give, you, you can give to them, right? So, teacher, she says. Jesus, he says, but he says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And here everything really gets personal, right? It really gets personal. He had called these guys servants in John 13. He'd called them friends in John 15. He called them disciples in John 15. But now he calls them brothers. Go to my brothers. My Father, your Father, my God, your God. All familial, intimate terminology, family stuff, right? So something has switched in Jesus' language. Something's happened as a result of the crucifixion and this resurrection. And we see why in Mark 15, as Jesus died on the cross, we're going backwards in the story right now, and he says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. This is the moment he died. He breathed out his last, and he's dead on that cross, right? And it says in verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you'll see why in a minute that that's an impossibility. 
And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Son of God meaning, surely he came to us from God. Surely he originates from God. That's what that term means. And this curtain which separated the holy place from the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, in the temple, was ripped, it was rent in two from top to bottom, creating an opening to the inner sanctum where the presence of God resided. No longer was it closed off. Even the high priest couldn't go in there but once a year on the Day of Atonement carrying the blood of the sacrifice. And this curtain was this visual image of our separation from a holy God. It was a visual image that all of Israel knew all the time. I can't go in there. Before Jesus came along, before this resurrection, you couldn't go past that. You couldn't go in there and enjoy God's presence. This 60 foot tall, 30 foot wide, 4 inch thick linen and woven yarn tapestry of purple and blue and scarlet was ripped from top to bottom upon Christ's crucifixion, signifying now, because of his sacrifice, that anyone could go into the presence of God through Jesus. And as the tomb was shut up with that rock, sealing off Mary's hope, It was now open. The the Son of God, the final sacrifice, the open door, the great high priest, Jesus, went in to the Holy of Holies and opened the way for reconciliation between humankind and God, providing the only sacrifice which could absolve all people of sin if we will come to Him. The final sacrifice of Jesus brings us back in to relationship with a holy God, with our Father in heaven. The curtain which could not be ripped was. The stone that could not be moved was moved. And now there's free access to come into fellowship with God through Christ. As it states in Hebrews 10, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... Not arrogance, but we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is, His body. In other words, He's represented as the curtain being ripped open. He's the doorway to God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we possess, for He who promised is faithful. So here's the point. We no longer worship from afar. We, don't, we, we no longer have to rely on any mediator because He is the mediator. God's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We could not atone for our sin. No way, no how. In Christ, God says, come close to me. The barrier has fallen. I've taken it away. The curtain's been rent. It's revealing my presence toward you. So let let your Father in heaven embrace you in the cross. Let Him embrace you with an empty tomb this morning. Maybe for the first time in your life. Let it happen. 
Let God show you how much He loves you through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. Let Him get personal with you and make you a part of the family. Let Him call you son or daughter. Last week I said that the Lord led me to tell, to tell you that somebody in the room was talking, was thinking about the word manipulation. That you feel like us pastors, us Christians are manipulating you. Yes, we are, openly. I want to manipulate you into lo- knowing Jesus. Not because I've got some ulterior motive, some selfish motive, or whatever. I want you to know Him. Because I know what He's done for me. Amen, right? He wants you to be open to His manipulative hand in your heart. He wants you to let Him mold and shape your life. If that hasn't happened, it should happen right now. Right? Mary, as we end the story, Mary runs back to the disciples and she shouts, I've seen the Lord. She found who she was seeking, who she was looking for. She had Jesus back and the promise wasn't empty because the tomb was empty. And that's the point on Easter. Because of Jesus, we enter boldly into God's presence as His children. The question isn't what do we seek, it's whom do we seek? If that stone had never been rolled away, if the curtain had never been ripped, if Jesus never reappeared, all hope in this story would have died on that cross along with Him. But it didn't. It didn't. And even all the critics of the story have a really hard time explaining why so many trustworthy people witnessed this event. The truth of the matter is, it is a reality that Christ lives. As crazy as it sounds, He does live. I know how crazy it sounds. I mean, I'm a pretty intelligent guy, I think. I don't think I'm a dork. I know how crazy it sounds, but it is truth. And it became personal to the disciples. As later on, Jesus breathes out the Holy Spirit on them. And what we're talking about here is not religion. We're talking about relationship. We're talking about experiencing relationship with the living God and the power of God. Jesus taught them what the heart of God was. He lived among them and He walked with them and He taught them everything. And by His resurrection, He then gave them the power to live it. And they received the Holy Spirit and relationship with Him is now infused with power. So when looking for fulfillment, remember the question is, who am I seeking? Not what. Not what. The world is absolutely full of empty promises. We all know that. But Mary walked upon an empty tomb that was full of promise and power to become one of God's own family again. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to your table this morning, celebrating Easter, celebrating what happened on that cross and what happened as a result of that empty tomb, we ask that you would make it clear, crystal clear to us, 
who you are and what you are. Both those people in this room who have never met you before and those who have known you for years and may have gotten sort of far from you. We pray that both of us can walk hand in hand as brothers and sisters into the Holy of Holies, into the most holy place, and that we can experience your presence in real and powerful ways. And through that, we can find healing and passion and life and purpose as you created your people to be and to have. Come and bless us now as we worship and as we celebrate your table together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to pass the tithe boxes, which are there on the front. I'm sorry. You go ahead. I'll I'll, I'll finish in a minute. Thank you.